This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Critics at Large, a podcast from The New Yorker. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. And I'm Vincent Cunningham. Now, we're all staff writers at The New Yorker. That's right. That's right. That's who we are. And each week on this show, we make sense of what's happening in the culture right now and how we got here. How you guys doing? Doing great. Doing well. Doing well. Yeah, doing okay. You're lowering the bar well and I'm raising like it. Well, seems like a qualification Listen, from great. The sun is shining <laughs> and we're alive. That's true. A lot to be said for that. Uh, well, in light of that, <laughs> the other day, right, I sat down and I watched the new Dave Chappelle special that came out on New Year's Eve. Uh, it's called The Dreamer, and it's the latest in this sort of run of specials that Chappelle has done with Netflix. The Dreamer starts with a long story that I was really enjoying for a while. It's, he's talking about meeting... Jim Carrey on the set of Man on the Moon, uh, Man on the Moon mm-hmm. his sort of biopic of Andy Kaufman, where, which he was like famously method acting. And when he walked into the room where we were supposed to meet, I screamed, Jim Carrey! And everyone said, no! <laughs> Call him Andy. And I didn't understand. And then he came over... And the talking about how weird it was to meet Jim Carrey but not meet Jim Carrey. But it ends up being, of course, a kind of allegory about... Something that Dave Chappelle is, for whatever reason, now obsessed with trans people. I could see he was Jim Carrey. Anyway, I say all that to say, that's how trans people make me feel. And if that sounds disappointing to you, then that is a metaphor for how you will feel about the entire special, I think. Um, two things struck me about the special. First, it's yet another example of an endless, often annoying conversation, right, about what you're supposed to say, what you're allowed to say. In comedy, as a comedian, yeah. this complaint of, you know, you can't joke about anything anymore. Right. And second, the special is like incredibly self-referential. You can yes. only really understand it mm-hmm. if you've been paying close attention to Dave Chappelle for the past like five years or so. Yeah. Um, for me, it brought up this question about comedy that seems especially unresolved these days. What is the figure of the comedian for? Mm. What do audiences or just maybe society want them to do? Yeah. That anxiety has become almost a subject of stand-up itself. Does that, I mean, is that kind of in line with how you, what you've been noticing recently? Yeah, definitely. I think, I think um, on the one hand, what you say about Chappelle, specifically about kind of like pushing the boundaries of what you're allowed to say or not and dealing with cancel culture. I think that's something that Chappelle is like maybe number one in, but there's also Ricky Gervais, who just also had a Netflix special come out recently. My last show, Supernature, dropped on Netflix last year. Um, Big backlash, wasn't there? Big, oh, big backlash. People going, you can't say that. You can. And I think just generally the question of what is a comedian for would seem to be quite simple on the face of it, right? A comedian I wish, yeah. Right? A comedian is for making us laugh. Right. Right? I think it's probably never been that easy, you know? Right. But um, I think now it's even more complicated for a variety of reasons, first among which is – the sort of like political valence of 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 comedy 
in the midst of kind of a culture wars yeah. moment or a renewed culture wars moment. Alex, is this like part of your experience of comedy these days? The question of what the comedian is for. What it's for and this anxiety being part of the substance of the special Mm. itself. Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, it may also be for one very simple reason, which is that there are more comedians. There are more performances going on. Like they're on all the streaming services. Netflix is putting out a new special, it seems like, every day. And so if you want to get your uh, the word about Mm. you out, I think you kind of have to make a convincing case to the audience that – you're standing for something. And I think there's that anxiety maybe baked in these days. That's That's a really good point. So what I want to do this episode along those lines is trace how our expectations of comedians have changed over the years uh, and then maybe talk about some of the new comedy we're seeing now just because I think that on the one hand, it's pushing the form to really unusual and interesting places, but also it's exposing some growing pains, some fissures that might help us understand what comedy means it's supposed to do in today's world. So that's today on Critics at Large. What is the comic for? Okay, so let's start by looking at some of the specials that have come out recently. We'll start with Dave Chappelle just because I mentioned him and I think he is an emblem of something. The new special he released on Netflix, as I mentioned, is called The Dreamer. What did you guys think about that? Well, um... (laughs) Well, well, that might be my complete thought, but go ahead. I mean, the main, you know, the the first order of business with with comedy and with stand-up comedy more particularly is, am I laughing? Mm Mm-hmm. And obviously, I before watching the Chappelle special, I had heard a lot of talk about it. You know, this is something that is, you know, a, a kind of a hot button comedy special because of all of the trans jokes and and the path Chappelle has been taking along those lines over the past few years. But I, I attempted to come to it with an open mind. You know, mm-hmm. I was just like, I'm going to sit and I'm going to laugh. If I'm if I'm going to laugh, I'm going to let myself laugh. You know, I'm, yeah. I wasn't like, OK, I'm going to kind of be overdetermined in my expectations. And um, I really uh, did not crack a smile, which I felt really sad about. But I just did. It just wasn't funny to me at all. Yeah. <laughs> like at all. Like yeah. shockingly, you yeah. know, like stone faced. We we mostly agree about this. Yeah. Alex, are you was, was this kind of where you landed? Where were you on this? So I want to try to parse out for myself where I landed on this with your help. Like, can you okay. guys help me a bit? I'm trying to make sense of Please. the experience of Please. having seen this. So what Nomi has been hinting at, not hinting at, but saying is that Chappelle has become known over the past few years for jokes that the trans community or many people in the trans community have taken as attacks. And, like, I think it's important to say that there's just been a huge furor around the jokes that Chappelle has been making about trans people. Like, not only are people saying that they're unfunny, but people are also saying that it makes them feel unsafe, that Chappelle is, like, opening the Overton window when it comes to what can and can't be said about um, trans people, that basically he's, like, some of the more... Um, you know, some of the harsher critiques of his comedy have been that it's actually causing harm in society. And that has gotten my attention and made me curious, but also has made me nervous to engage with it. And Mm. of course, like Vincent, I'm guessing this is the case for you. I also have, you know, I don't think Chappelle's on a pedestal for me anymore, but like certainly from the era of the Chappelle show, like, you know, his groundbreaking sketch comedy series, um, like at the when that came out, they're kind of no, Chappelle could do no harm. That's like right. yeah. he was the funniest person alive. It yeah. seemed like so. I was very curious about my own reaction. What would it be like to finally like sit down with this guy who once really made me laugh and uh, confront something I was nervous about? So the first joke, which you described, Vincent totally, like, pulled the rug out from under me. I did not see the punchline coming. This long, heartfelt joke that's about him meeting Jim Carrey and having to call Jim Carrey Andy Kaufman because Jim Carrey is super method, and it ending up becoming a punchline about trans people, whoa. Yeah. And I just felt really deflated by that joke, I would say, which kind of became true of the special for me in general. And the deflation had to do with this sense of, 
okay, you really want to define your audience in a really specific way. Um, Like, I didn't see a huge difference between that and, like, MAGA stuff, to be honest with you. I don't think it's that, like, courageous or saying things we can't hear. I just think it's about telling a certain kind of person, um, like, you don't want to hear this? I'm going to tell it to you anyway. But there are a ton of people who do want to hear it. But they're all in his audience. They're all in his audience. And he has huge audiences. He's, like, a mega best-selling comedian. So I more felt like, oh, you're making this, like, really easy for yourself. And then the rest of the special, to me, was, again, all about, um, you know— Dave Chappelle trying to deal with what it feels like to be Dave Chappelle. A lot of it is about talking about the Chris Rock slap and his own relationship to Chris Rock and what he would have done if he were in the, you know, the position of being slapped. And a lot of it is about him getting attacked uh, at one of his own shows. And it's kind of like he's returning to this, you know, he's literally alone on a stage. It's like almost a semi-round, semi-in-the-round. A semi-in-the-round experience with him, right, with him almost in this, yeah, like very small space carved out of a bigger stage. I'm just going on about this in the attempt to explain, I think, that, like, that's kind of what stand-up comedy is. It's about being the one against the many and trying to get the many on your side. But everyone walking in that room is kind of already on Dave's side. And so I think what's going on with the trans jokes in part is this, like, very weird power battle that is non-ending that's just – it's almost like an arm wrestle. Like, if I I can just get you guys to laugh at yourselves and I'll – then. I'll declare to win, and I'll ease up on you. And instead, weirdly, I feel like he's coming out the strange loser in this battle because the jokes aren't getting funnier, but he is getting more um, desperate to make them land. You know, Julia Kristeva, this book, you might want to read it. Um, It's about um, the abjection that is – I think this is kind of what we're talking about. That is like, you know, whether it was Jewish people, black people, the beginning of stand-up comedy as we know it, people that were vulnerable because of their position in society, coming before an audience and sort of wrestling back some kind of control, but through the necessary objection, right? Um, And then we can think about another special that we all recently watched. It's called Get On Your Knees. This is a one-woman play-turned-comedy special written and performed by Jacqueline Novak. She wears in this special... Um, a gray, shapeless T-shirt, the kind that, you know, we kind of recognize from teenage girls everywhere trying to hide whatever developments Mm. might lie beneath. A puberty special. That's a puberty special. That's right. Um, And it is a, I would say, a, a very verbally precise, breathless, essayistic, um, it is stand-up, but it's also a kind of monologue, about the blowjob and its place in a young girl's life. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the penis's vulnerability is something I've been aware of for some time, really since, I don't know, age 11, when I started reading these magazines with these articles, headlines on the cover, How to Please Your Man. They broke the story every month, and I'd flip to the article to see if there was anything new. And it always kind of came down to a list of instructions about how not to injure the tender penis, you know? <laughs> I remember specifically this, careful near the tip. It's extremely sensitive. Like, like you, you can't imagine a part of the body as sensitive as the tip of a penis. And it's like, oh God. You must be very sensitive then. And that's the first thing I'm gonna run into on the penis, like in my approach. I have to land gingerly because that's the most sensitive part. It's like, shouldn't you bury that treasure somewhere deeper in the castle? Maybe in contrast to the Chappelle, maybe not. What did you guys think about this? I know that it, one of the ways that she's presented this is theatrically at Cherry Lane Theater. And Alex, in your role as theater critic, you you reviewed this show. I wonder maybe if you could talk about that experience and then watching the special. That's true. So I've seen Get On Your Knees three times now, including okay. the special. I reviewed it. I absolutely loved it. I went back to see it again, chasing the high. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, uh, and one thing that I do love about Get on Your Knees is that it is so verbal and it goes so fast and so much of what she is working with um are defamiliarizing things that, you know, actually to go back to Nomi talking about Viktor Shklovsky last week. She's, See, it's a, we're we're circling it's back. Where we're at. She's <laughs> yeah. she's defamiliarizing, you know, basically like expectations around sexual coming of age. And it goes in all different directions from her own experience just to, like, the language we use to refer to the genitals, to refer to sex acts, like the kind of received, extremely cliched ways that we've come to think about these things. She makes them strange and fresh and therefore very funny again. Well, as as someone who came to it as a Mm first-time listener, 
I, I could, I just did not enjoy it. <gasps> and and this Ooh. is a very, this is a very, this is very tough, right? Because, and this is part of what stand up. I does. love when we disagree. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. This is what stand up does. It's like it, it does make you uncomfortable if it's like you know about something that should indict you mm-hmm. or should you know point the mm-hmm. finger at you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Perhaps you're not laughing is a is evidence of something sinister within you. So this whole thing that's like sort of puncturing holes in the male ego instead of doggy style, she calls it what the style of the hound, the hound's way, the, the, hound, hound's, the way. hound's way. She has all these like really interesting. She sort of turns around the idea of the erection. She said that's not a that's not a building I, I'd walk into. Like I don't think that thing is up to code. Right, right. Um, these funny things about so you know I maybe she I'm calls the, person, the penis Susan. She, yeah, she calls the it's, penis. It's like a feminized, the most feminized. Organ, right? You know, on a male, on a male body, right? All these interesting things, and I thought they were amazing turns of phrase, and yeah. I, and I would have enjoyed them more mm. if they were presented to me, uh, not unlike a David Sedaris essay. Yeah, um, oh, interesting. It just, and, and maybe reading it would have made me more alive. And she makes, you know, she makes lots of little literary references. She's like approaching. Uh, giving her first blowjob, she's thinking of uh, Vladimir Nabokov. Um, she at one point she says, "You know, the toothless, smooth blowjob is the hobgoblin of little minds," mm-hmm. which is a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson about <laughs> a slavish consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, all these kinds of things, which were interesting to me and impressive to me, which were that's what I thought the laughs were like. Wow, yeah, listen to that, yeah. But I could not. I just for me because I I do like to get my yucks in. I was like, mm. I do love yucks as well. So much like No Mean Friend of Chappelle, Jack Lenova gave you not a single laugh. She gave me, I, I had scant laughs. Uh, scant, scant laughs. Maybe I had a chuckle, but I really was just like, um, it's more of a chuckle vibe. I, I oh my God, I want to know what, I want to know what, no, okay, now should I, I know. Please, should I, please jump in. Okay, should I be a tiebreaker? Okay, I, I will say, I, in terms of yucks, yeah. So, uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> yuck meter in terms of the yuck meter. I'm gonna, I'm gonna now seem like a person who laughs not once at any kind of comedy. We've because... seen Nomi laugh. Let's just, let's just say <laughs> Nomi has a great laugh. If you want to get a, you know, a notary in here, I'll sign some document. That's completely fine. To I, me. So I was, she I laughs. was like, okay, this is a, this is, this is an achievement. This is an impressive achievement. I think it's super smart. I think it's making me think about things. In a, in a different way. Yeah. Is it making me laugh? L-A-double-F? Not really. Right. And, you know, um, Vincent, to your point about, and I think it's generally obviously like a, a, an interesting point about watching comedy, about who is the watcher and who is the performer and That's the relationship right. between them and, you know, thinking about like whether you relate or not to the comedian in terms of your identity and so on. So, you know, for you... You were a man. You are a man. I am. <laughs> and I mean, re- regrettably, let's face it. Regrettably, but... you're a man or not, unregrettably, <laughs> not regrettably. Um, so your relationship to, to the material was was a, a, a particular one, right? And I watched it and I'm like, okay, I should like, in a different way, I was like, I'm like an uptight Jewish lady who's like smart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I should love this. But maybe it's like too close to home. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Because I too am like cerebral about sex. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Or or like I'm like maybe this is making me feel like uncomfortable identification in some way. Yeah. You know, I mean that might enter into it too, which is yeah, like I said, a question in with comedic performance. One thing that struck me, and maybe it's because it's was so essayistic. Like, if we're thinking about this role thing, I think this this was the great utility of this special. Like, that um, it was something that either you could be alienated from it, but also, like, it could be a, a site of identification for you. And maybe, like, that's one of the new places, one of the new things that, that, that stand-up might be. Mm-hmm. Like, she seems so much more of a protagonist than usually the stand-up is, like, a kind of antagonist almost to the audience, um, someone who is working something out. Here, putting oneself forward as a protagonist, come along with me on this journey and see what we can like kind of glean together. In a minute, the long, 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 long history of comedy 
free speech, and the culture wars. Critics at Large from The New Yorker will be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So trying to figure this thing out, um, especially when it comes to sort of outrage and speech and what we can or cannot say. Um, I read this book. It's called um, Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. It's by um, a writer named Cliff Nesteroff. Here, this is really more of an encyclopedia of showbiz and the culture wars, where he's just telling you decade by decade um, where free speech whatever culture war is happening at the time and the sort of contingencies of a moment have come together with respect to comedy and showbiz, right? If there is an argument, just by laying this stuff out, maybe the argument is it is very silly to talk about what you can and cannot say now since that has been the, the, the subtext and sometimes the text of comedy for a century now. Mm. So maybe that's the argument. You mm. know? So you mean that like in the way that comedians, as we were talking about before, that a certain strain of comedians, the Chappelle's and the Gervaises, like to say, you can't say anything anymore. That's just kind of always been with us. It's always been with us. He starts, you know, in the 1910s with vaudeville, which is the, mm-hmm. if there is any sort of ancestor to stand-up comedy, it's vaudeville. Um, in vaudeville, it was really interesting that there were these different circuits that were managed by different people, and they all had their own rules and regulations. It's like, you know, in this state, you cannot talk about sex at all. You can't, you know, you can't talk about um, sex. You can't talk about uh, race or whatever. There were all these different um Prohibitions. One big thing, of course, was ethnic stereotype at a time when the country is being flooded with new immigrants all the time. There's a, there's a, Italians, there's Irish, and unfailingly, once a an ethnic group becomes more and more sort of embedded into the culture, this is something that Nesrov does point out. Um, at a certain point, they say, "Okay, enough." ragging on us, right? Okay, so this is very interesting what you're saying because you're talking about two different kinds of prohibitions and I feel that contemporary comics who say that they feel censored often conflate Conflate, the two. That's right. Mm -hmm. One is official prohibition and even just you're saying it makes me want to hear a bunch of jokes about all those things. Like someone official saying you can't tell a sex joke, of course you want to tell a sex joke. Right. Obviously. Of course. The other one is about social standing and a sense that people no longer want to be the butt of a joke and made fun of and that it might behoove the comedian not to make fun of them, maybe because they want to include those people in their audience or maybe, honestly, just because of market pressures, more people find it less funny. So, you know, your your audience is not telling you you can't do something. Your audience just isn't with you if you do it. So you may want to change your act. That's Um, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, those I are mean, two do- totally different things. There's this anecdote about, like, sort of at the turn of the century, um, this uh, group called the Russell Brothers. They sort of dressed in drag, um, and their act was called the Irish Sher- Servant Girls, and they were doing Irish stereotypes. And the crowd, I think it's overstated, they called it a riot, but they, they, these people were hissed off the stage. Things thrown, like, the the, the lar- like the plurality of the crowd that was Irish was said no more, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that this happened over and over, whether we're talking about blackface, um, whether we're talking about um, sort of racist comedy, especially at the end of World War II when the when the 
veterans come home and mm-hmm. all, there's this like recrudescence of racist comedy and the people with new social standing and new ideas of themselves as Americans saying no more. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another anecdote about Lucille Ball is pregnant on the I Love Lucy show. One of my favorite, something that I was like absolutely raised on. My mother mm-hmm. was obsessed with Lucille Ball. Um, she gets pregnant and Desi Arnaz is like, we're going to do a show and it's going to and she's going to be pregnant in the show because we can't hide it. And and people are sending men and women are sending letters saying it's disgusting to, that Lucy's having babies. Like the oh. network freaked out. The network didn't want to air uh, Lucy being pregnant because it implies sex. Yeah. Yeah. So there's it seems to me just like just as you mentioned, there's two things about and like, they were a married couple. I just I just love that. That's how the television networks found out how babies were made. I know. How do you think all these people are here? Um, but it's like <laughs> your viewers, your viewers <laughs> came into the world in a very similar way. <laughs> yeah. If, but if I could, you know, you mentioned two different kinds of things that are conflated. If I had to articulate that, I would say uh, pressures over depiction. Like right. here's a here's a pregnant woman. So depiction on the one hand and denigration on the other hand, Mm -hmm. right? Totally different things. What can you show, which is like, you know, what censorship comes from, and then people perceiving themselves rightly or wrongly to be denigrated and this from the ground up lodging their complaints with comedians. It's two very different kinds of pressures. Yeah. You know, all that, you know, this, this nexus, very hard to navigate. Reminds me of one of my favorite comedians who is George Carlin. And I know, Nomi, you watched a uh, that George Car. Both of you guys actually yeah, have watched George, George Carlin's American Dream, um, a two part miniseries on HBO about mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. by Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfilio. About, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, I, I saw it when it came out. Yeah, this came out in twenty twenty two, I believe, um, and it's a two part documentary. Each part is two hours long. I I think Carlin is a really Obviously, a legendary figure in stand-up comedy and kind of like was active for 50 years, nearly 50 years, you know, since the early 60s when he was about 20 or in his early 20s until his death in 2008. And, you know, Carlin famously reinvented himself as a comic. And it's interesting to me just uh, what I what the documentary did for me is kind of show how important comedy can be as a kind of weather vane for the times. I think one of the more interesting parts of of the documentary is when they talk about Carlin in the early 70s, where he kind of turned countercultural and was talking about um, the seven dirty words you can't seven say you on, can't TV. on TV. Yeah. yeah, And I wanted to know the ones that you could never say on television. I mean the filthy words that are always filthy. There are a lot of these little two-way double entendre words that have two meanings, words that are okay part of the time. I call them like part-time filth. Some of these words, they're only 50% dirty. You have words like ass. Ass is hardly even a dirty word anymore, but it has a few meanings that you can't say on television. That's what I was talking about. What can you say on television? That's another one of those places where we can't use these words all the time. But some of them are all right some of the time. Ass is all right on television. You can say on television things like, well, you've made a perfect ass of yourself tonight. But you can't say, hey, let's go get some ass. Wait, I, I I wrote a list down. Okay, Please it's say it. shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. Yeah. Cursing, cussing, swearing, and all I could think of was shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. <laughs> a lot, you know. There's a lot of talking heads on the documentary, and all of them kind of grew up with Carlin and talk about how definitive and how important that moment was, you know, just listening to Carlin kind of like yeah. flay open that the, the those kind of conventions or even sometimes laws. And I was thinking to myself, it's interesting, you know, because now we wouldn't really bat an eye. You know, it, it just also made me think about how contextual comedy is, you know. Yeah, you're, looking, moments, yeah, yeah. you're looking for the fault line and you're looking to step over which, it. Which changes right. over time. I mean, I think that has a lot to do also with the later comedy uh, of Carlin Nomi, which I think set a certain vision for what the comics should do in America. And that is um, of the social critic of the state. Like what 
Carlin is doing at the end of his life is basically getting up on stage and saying the United States is a warmongering, you know, nation that is ignoring the needs of its own people. And he's being an angry prophet. The only true lasting American value that's left, buying things, buying things. People spending money they don't have on things they don't need. Money they don't have on things they don't need. So they can max out their credit cards and spend the rest of their lives paying 18 percent interest on something that costs twelve fifty. And they didn't like it when they got it home anyway. Not too bright, folks. Like a lot of it is being an angry prophet. And yeah. often he was very funny doing that. Right. But that was a big part of what he's doing. And so, you know, you hit 9-11, post-9-11 culture where like that then becomes the comic's role to sort of say, you know what, guys? What if we're not always the good guys? And what mm-hmm. if we're doing things wrong? And from there you get the huge success of someone like Jon Stewart, who is able to kind of combine both roles Mm -hmm. on Comedy Central in a fake news show that nonetheless, as we all know, delivers the news to many people (laughs) Mm -hmm. and manages to be a kind of alternate truth teller Mm -hmm. for uh, during an era riddled with lies and weird patriotic propaganda. You're right. This morning, President Bush unveiled his proposed war budget at the Pentagon for the first time putting a dollar amount on the cost of Operation Iraqi Freedom. All right, Mr. President, let's see the bill. Today, I'm sending the Congress a wartime supplemental appropriations request of $74.7 billion. $74.7 billion? Let let me see that check. Let me, okay, hold on a second. 74.7. Rumsfeld, did you order the extra missiles? Is that you? And then... You know, the fact that, like, that kind of comedy has been less successful recently. We're just in a very different era. Um, there is, there is, I think, you know, and again, I think it all keeps coming back to that Chappelle special and, like, what Chappelle is trying to do. We're not really in an era, I think, where there is, like, a big mainstream America and then people who feel kind of like we're trying to fight that thing. It feels much more just kind of ah, split in two. Um, And so when it's more split in two, it's easier both for you to say as the comic, yeah, everyone's against me, but I come here on my side. But it's also easier if if you're not on that team to perceive it as just like, oh, you're just preaching to your own choir again. Does that make any sense? Definitely. Like right now, I think we're in a big preaching to your own choir moment when it comes to political comedy. And and, and not a revolutionary statement. But um, it's hard to like revitalize that. Right. Form. It's it's mm-hmm. less about Under current conditions. Yeah, it's less about breaking down the mythologies of the state and more about like if you agree with me, you know, again, this kind of identification, you know, watching becomes a badge. It's almost like a bumper sticker of mm-hmm. who you are and what you believe. So us, you know, the audience out there in the seats, are we a community? Are we a crowd? Or are we a mob? All that and more in a minute on Critics at Large. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. (laughs) On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, Anna Winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mao. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOC. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So I keep thinking about the audience and what the audience is. I can't help but think that there is something going on with the composition of an audience that itself itself affects comedy and the role of the comic. Mm. Um. You know, I dipped into another book on comedy recently, which is called Comedy Book by Jesse David Fox, yeah. mm-hmm. who writes about comedy mm-hmm. for for Vulture. Um, and, 
he starts his book by talking about different theories of comedy, what makes comedy work. And he lands on this idea of play, that comedy allows us to play, to kind of go back to this childlike state where we can experiment with things and have fun with things. Mm. And that the act of playing or being in the presence of play, which I guess is what you might feel like if you're watching good stand-up, makes us into a community. Mm. And it's that thing, community, that is giving me a little bit of pause when it comes to comedy. Because on the one hand, nothing is more bonding than finding the same thing funny as someone else. But the thing that's giving me pause specifically is that, you know, we are living in such a time of communal division where it's really like, like, you know, it really just society feels divided. I think we all know this, Mm -hmm. that it does create, if you want to, you know, preach to a community, there really is a big risk of preaching to the choir. Um, And to me, that doesn't sharpen comedy or like make comedy more interesting or more fun or play the role of, or let the comedian play the role of the truth teller. Um, It is itself a kind of invitation to comedic laziness. Um, which can also, and here I'm going to take a big old swing, be moral laziness. And the reason why it can be moral laziness is that I think one role of the comic is to look at the, you know, Nomi was talking about fault lines before. It is to Mm -hmm. look at the fault lines of society and it's to step on them, I think, to find out if they're arbitrary or not. Are they there for a good reason or not? Yeah. And if they're not there for a good reason, then you want to tap dance all over them then that is you get to be the exemplar of the taboo breaker. You get to have the freedom, and I think this is another reason people love comedy, that most people can't afford themselves. Most people can't go around saying the taboo-breaking thing because it's it's simply not done. But the comic can, and when the comic gives voice to that for a lot of people, something very exciting can happen. But by the same token, the comic who feels that he or she is doing that, but is actually just playing into, like, a very common talking line. Again, I'm just keep coming back to Chappelle with with the trans stuff. It's like, I think if you're watching it, um, you know, even if you're not trans, if you're just watching it kind of attuned to that experience, you're thinking, like, there literally is nothing new here. This is just mean, nasty discourse. So you're not turning anything on its head. You're just participating in it. But you're saying that— you're you're breaking all these boundaries. Yeah, no, I mean, I just couldn't believe I was watching it and I was like, oh, I, I'm looking forward at least to an attempt to make this new somehow, this like discourse. You know what I mean? Because that's how it's presented. I'm going to – and then like the joke is like, oh, my God, like how can you be a woman if you have a dick? You know, stuff like that. And I was like, what? Like yeah. this is this is what you're – It's it's This yeah, is exactly. the joke? It, yeah. Exactly. And it, it just like, makes me wonder like <laughs> is community in comedy always a net positive? I yeah. mean I hate to come back to Trump and MAGA and all this stuff, but I do think humor is a big bonding force. Um, people laughing at other people was in – we saw it in 2016. We're seeing it again now. is like a big bonding force at the kind of classic MAGA rally, just like finding someone else to point and laugh at. Um, and that element is also part of what it means to be in the audience, yeah. you know, in a comedic no, totally. audience. It can be. And so like the great – some of the great comics play with it by directing, you know – that communal feeling back onto themselves. Yeah, like I'm exactly. Thinking, I'm thinking of um, a special I really liked recently that I think you guys have seen also is John Mulaney's special yeah, from I was gonna last say that. year, mm-hmm. um, which is called Baby J, where he talks about having gone to rehab. And what makes that special funny is he's kind of taking it. I mean, I think he's really playing into the utmost level of being alone on a stage with a bunch of people around you. You know, he's exposing some ugly stuff about himself. There's a long story about buying and selling a Rolex watch in order to buy cocaine. And I was listening to that story and thinking like, ooh, this is bad. Like, wow, this man was really in a bad way. And like, yeah, it's funny, but it's also dark as hell. Um, And he's kind of getting the audience together and allowing himself to be laughed at in a way that may be therapeutic for him, but is also, like, pretty bracing, I think. Yeah. So I appreciated that special. Yeah, one of the, the the tag of that that whole story about the Rolex watches. Now, if you think that I'm terrible and desperate and un- unlikable in this story, 
just just remember, this is one that I'm willing to tell you. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree, Alex. And when you were talking about like the sort of like punching, quote unquote, punching down and 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 making fun in order to form a kind of community of ugliness. You know? yeah, yeah. I was thinking about Mulaney because I do think Mulaney, I, I finally something I laughed at. <laughs> you guys, everybody yeah. like read this. I laughed at that relief. too. I really thought it was a good question. Uh, I thought it was like both super smart and sort of like viscerally funny and um famously Mulaney was sort of like America's sweetheart, you know, the sort of like wife guy who was like clean cut and like, you know, and then he obviously had this like very publicly explosive scandal, you know, uh, broke up with his wife, went to rehab, was revealed to have had a really bad coke and other drugs problem. And I, I thought, you know, I have a friend who told me recently she was visiting a friend of hers in rehab and that they were showing the Mulaney special in rehab, oh, which wow. I thought was really an interesting kind of hall of mirrors tid- tidbit. That's really um, because that's a different kind of community, right? It's a community of recovery, and I could see how important, as they say, you can't see it if you you can't be it if you can't see it. You know, see, seeing this, you know, figure that uh, puts himself up. Um, for kind of examination, right, or puts his own story of kind of descent into drugs and and recovery up for viewing. So this is it just it kind of surprised me, but also made sense that what we glean from it isn't just laughs, but also a kind of like lesson, which I don't know that this was like Mulaney's intention in any way. But it it was just curious to me to, to learn from this friend that this is something that happens. Well, it's so interesting. I think this goes right back to Alex's question about who the audience is. Like, mm-hmm. that image of people in rehab listening yeah. to a comic talking about rehab actually goes back to Jesse David Fox's book because the rhythm that he sketches out about the figure, again, of the stand-up comic is, okay, you have the 60s, 50s and 60s where suddenly there's a coffee house culture, which meant that you could speak to what Fox talks uh, talks about as like-minded audiences and Mm. therefore work out things from a persona that sort of mirrored perhaps the attitudes and sensibilities of the viewer. To your niche. You speak to your niche. This is is Lenny Bruce. This is Mort Mm -hmm. Saul. Mm -hmm. Moves forward into what they call, for better or worse, the 80s comedy boom. A bunch of um, uh, comedy clubs that are franchised across the country. Um, He has a quote in there from Mark Maron, famous from his podcast, WTF. Marin has this quote in there that's like, franchise uh, comedy clubs begat franchise comics. So all of a sudden, it's like cheap Jack Nicholson impressions and all this kinds of just weird hack material, right? That like sort of is there so that it can appeal to everybody. And then what happens is like that becomes so bad that like the boom is over. Nobody goes anymore. Stand-up comedy sort of collapses in the 90s. And then there's this thing called alternative comedy. Yes. for me, the the signpost of that is will always be Janine Garofalo, mm-hmm. and she's mentioned here. I, 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 she's one of the first comics that I love you know, her. Growing up looking at Comedy Central, uh, just thinking she was so smart and cool. But what his point is that is that she does these like references, and it's clearly for an in crowd. It's like, who are these people that like Hootie the Blow, Blowfish and Dave Matthews Band? I know that you you know you probably like Friends, don't you? And you probably you know talking about. Almost the comedy is about your consumption being a sign of who you are. It was about we're all the kind of people that wear like chunky glasses and Doc Martens or whatever. We're all, we're all individuals. We're all, yeah, we're all <laughs> yeah. Gen X, disaffected. We're all individuals. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, all, yeah, all, you know, post Carlin, wearing flannel, uh, tired of America and willing to tell you about it. So I think this is one of the big dialectics, right? Like something that tries to reconstitute a large public becomes watered down and leads to something that's more like an in-group enclave, right? Mm-hmm. And if, any, if, if anything, I think, you know, we, all, we are always kind of talking about this in one way or another. The algorithm, the Spotify, the streaming or whatever has intensified that, right? So we're in, I think we're in a moment of extreme... The boundaries Identific- of your group just become reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. That's right. Mean. Yeah. Like identification, right? If you like this, you might like, is almost like 
the signpost and the the watchword of today's stand-up comedy. Well, yeah. I got to tell you guys, I mean, look, I know that I'm the big pro Jack Novak person in this room and I find her funny and the other two don't and that's fine. But I will just say, I think she has found an interesting fault line in her own audience that mm-hmm. she plays with. And we were talking about before about, you know, her being willing to be this figure, putting herself forward as this figure of projection. Um, and part of it is just like a very classic line between men and women where 100%. she's sort of saying like, yeah, like, you know, a lot of what she's talking about, a young woman in the suburbs or frankly anywhere, just like being like, okay, I'm going to sexually come of age, but how does it happen? Is super relatable right. to, 100%. you know, the women in the room. Yeah. And then the other half of it is just like imagining herself into the male mind and their expectations. And so those guys are there and like probably much like the guys in her show, kind of feeling misunderstood by the way that they're being addressed. Yeah. And that's part of what's funny that like they that, you know, the audience itself is divided and allowed at the end to kind of merge with itself and become one. Maybe that sounds totally like hooey gooey. But um, (laughs) no, I totally. Yeah. A transformation takes place that kind of divides that audience and then pushes them together by kind of defying their expectations and uniting them around something else. And that's a cool way to do it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's different than politics because I don't know if you're going to get a politically mixed crowd at any of these, you know. I don't know. Can you guys think of like a comedian who has a really politically mixed um I mean, in my, audience base, there might be somebody who'd like people that don't make us laugh. Like, so for example, for me, the laugh. person that's trying to do this right now and who I has over the years stopped making me laugh is Kevin Hart. Mm. You know, he's a he is a at this point a rock star. You know, he does arenas, yeah, yeah. which only a few comedians um, can do or do even attempt to do. But I think you risk you risk not saying anything and the the sort of um, the view from nowhere. Um, so I think it's it's uh, it's always a problem. There, I think this thing, you know, you're so right about like I think people come into audiences, whether they're a community a community or not, with real intention now in a way. I think they know what they're coming to see. Jesse yes. David Fox talks about the emergence of the comedy nerd, right? Somebody who has opinions about comedy, knows the who they're going to see and what the vibe is before they get there. Um, one really telling thing to me in the profile that Carrie Batten did. Uh, Carrie Batten's profile, our colleague Carrie Batten, profiled um, Jacqueline Novak recently in The New Yorker. It's a wonderful profile. Uh, it's talking about the period before she reaches her success. And uh, her friend John Early, who also directed the stage version of the show, he says, uh, as a kind of lament, like, okay, all of us remember Jacqueline doing her stuff and thinking that she was brilliant, but she's doing them at these bars and in front of these audiences that are, one, drunk, and, she, and he says not there in good faith, Mm, which mm. to me is such a new idea in comedy. Like, the point is like, yeah, they're drunk and you're supposed to get them, you know? But it's like, no, whatever comedy is now needs willing and like almost like predetermined audiences, people that are there to pay attention to a certain kind of thing, um, which which I don't think is salutary or not, but it's certainly new and I think... Um, if what we want is a kind of shattering of the whatever mythologies surround us, maybe it's not best for that, even if it is great for, you know, turning on Netflix and having a great time. Yeah. No, that's really that's really interesting. The sort of like preemptive nichification, <laughs> you know, of audiences like from from the get go. So maybe just a way to sort of we've been talking about what the comic is for. Maybe just to land this a more personal question. What these days do you want comedy to be when you search out a comedy special, which I do multiple times a week? What do you hope for comedy? I want to laugh. I want to think a little bit. And I want to forget. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm, the trifecta. Forgetting is, uh, yeah, it's just, it's entertainment. I want to forget my troubles a little bit. I, there have been a lot of times when I've laughed at comedy specials recently, but I'm trying to analyze for myself and failing at one that made me laugh really hard. Jenny Slate did a special a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, maybe two or three years ago. There was just one joke she did about being a little kid who was terrified 
of like dealing with a nightmare, you know, it just rearticulated this kind of big experience of childhood. And I guess that's what it is. It's it's seeing fresh. I do think it's about having your expectations defied by seeing something fresh, um, you know, in a, in a way that that just turns it all on its head. Yeah. For me, yeah. for me, the, the image for me that uh, maybe answers my own question is uh, when I was a kid, Chris Rock's Bigger and Blacker came out, mm. um, the special, but then also the the CD version. So I put in, I would put in this CD and like put it on low and like sit right next to it. Um, <laughs> and, so and crack up. But that image of like listening to other people laugh, laughing along, but also being alone. I belong to some audience. I'm also here thinking, you know, that it, 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 it brings me into a certain kind of community, but also makes me reflect mm-hmm. that I'm that I'm two things at once. And those two things are really what I'm always wanting. You know? Nailed it. Alone, as usual, nailed together. it. Mm. Alone together. Maybe maybe continue as such. Alone <laughs> together. Or the subtitle of this maybe podcast. Maybe you listener are alone together listening to this very podcast. Yes. Yeah. Before we go, we want to give you listeners a heads up on a show we're putting together in honor of one of the most maligned days of the year. Yes, my friends, Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah, we're not playing into all of this, you know, chocolates, candies, flowers. Oh, please. We are going to do an episode about stories of wretched love, by which we mean, you know, love that's gone horribly awry. And we want your help. We want to know what your favorite wretched love story is and why. I mean, it, it could be a book, could be a movie, could be a country song, a graphic novel. I don't know. Just surprise us. Tell us your top wretched love story and why you love it. You can write to us at themail at newyorker.com and include the word critics in the subject line. Or even better, send us a voicemail. Oh, yes. We've we've showed you ours. Now show us yours. That's right. Alex. Get involved. <laughs> Give us a call at 347-464-1476 and leave us a voicemail letting us know your favorite wretched love story and a bit about why you love it. And keep a lookout for that episode a few weeks down the line. Thank you. Uh, see you see soon. You next time. See you soon. This has been Critics at Large. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby, and Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Alexis Quadrado composed our theme music, and we had engineering help today from Jake Loomis with mixing by Mike Kutchman. You can find every episode of Critics at Large at newyorker.com slash critics. We'll be looking for your wretched love story submissions. Email them to us at themail at newyorker.com with the subject line, critics. Or leave us a voicemail at 347-464-1476, a very four-heavy number. (laughs) See you next Thursday. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. From PR.